Hello, I'm your host, Jennifer Metteris, and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 1, The Hartford Circus Fire, July 6th, 1944. 168 deceased, 700 injured. Several survivors said the one thing they will never forget about the circus fire as long as they live is the sound of the animals as they burned alive. But there were no animals. Stuart O'Nan, the circus fire. I hope it burns to the ground. The mother of Charles Nelson Riley, calling after him as he, as a child, and a friend were caught sneaking off to the circus that day from his one-man autobiographical play, The Life of Riley. July 6th, 1944, was a very hot day. By the time noon rolled around, it was about 90 degrees in Hartford, Connecticut. Now, this wasn't exactly the kind of day that you wanted to sit in the house and just suffer through this heat. So the fact that the circus was in town was a really great diversion. It was something that, it wasn't the movies, it wasn't something that you could do any day of the week. You know, this was a novelty of sorts, although... Ringling Brothers came to Hartford a lot. Lots of circuses came to Hartford. It was a real circus town, and it was very supportive of the circus. Now, World War II was in full swing. Uh, it was only a month since Nor uh, Normandy, since DJ, had happened. And if you wanted to get to the circus, you had to save up your ration tickets so you could buy the gas to get there. And you may have wanted to check in before you went because the day before, July 5th, when Ringling Brothers arrived, they were actually late. Uh, they actually, it was more like their equipment was late. The tent was late and some of the poles and that sort of thing because of the railways. Supposedly, that was the excuse that Ringling Brothers gave. The railways were too small for them to fit their rather large train cars on, so they would take a little more time when they get to these tight curves but the railway had a different story that seemed to be the case with a lot of things when it came to the circus they would give this grand story when actually the story was probably a little bit more realistic so while the circus performers got a little bit of time off the night before people had showed up you know looking for the circus and had had to be turned away because the stand was missed now, missing a stand is a pretty bad omen when it comes to the circus, so that was already a bad sign. As for Hartford itself, the people in Hartford, this was a time when people had, you know, they had money. They were all employed. Lots of people were employed because of the war. There was a lot of war work available. You had companies like Colts, Fuller Brush, Pratt & Whitney, Hamilton Standard, Sikorsky, Royal Underwood typewriters, and they were all employing tons of people because they had lots of war contracts, uh, government contracts, excuse me, because of the war. Now, there was a lot of people also who were renting out extra rooms or renting out even sheds or garages and getting money for them because people from out of town were coming to Hartford so that they could make extra money because of the war. And so you would have people who were time-sharing with other people on different shifts, you know. 
um, I work the night shift and you work the day shift, so let's both rent this room and then we'll switch off on the bed. There was also the fact that more women were working because all the men were away. So you had the sort of the Rosie the Riveter sort of thing where women were going into the factories and making money. And because of this, uh, you know, there was a lot of money to be made in, you know, entertainment, that sort of thing, because it gave people a diversion from the war and from all this work that they had to do. Of course, the problem is that July 6th was a Thursday, so a lot of people were at work that day. So, you know, dads were at work, sometimes moms were at work if, if dad was away at war. And because of that, you had kids who were begging, you know, who were going with neighbors or who, who were going to the circus with grandma and grandpa or, you know, Uncle Bob or whoever. Now, that particular day on July 6th, People were arriving on Barber Street, and if you arrived on, Bar arrived on Barber Street, which is where the circus was being held on a lot there, there was not a lot of parking to be had, but people were trying to make a buck, because if the circus is going to be there annoying you with loud noises and lots of animal smells, then you might as well make a buck. So... People were selling spots on their lawn to park. You know, if you want to come and you want to park on the lawn, you know, it's going to cost you maybe a buck to park on a lawn so that you don't have to drive over to the other side of town and then walk. Um, aside from that, you know, you also had people who, if you were walking along Barber Street to go to the circus, you may run across, you know, little girls with lemonade stands trying to make a little extra money before you get to the midway. We have lemonade cheaper over here. So that was uh, something that you could spend a little money on before you even got to the circus. Now, when you got to the lot at Barber Street, you might pass by the business next door, which was sort of a, a stone working company. And, you know, kind of one of those creepy little things that happens, you know, a creepy little omen is that, of course, with a stoneworking uh, sort of company like that, you, you have the samples out front and they're gravestones. So you have all these blank gravestones sitting out front right before you get to the circus. So that's a little unsettling, in, especially considering what happened later on. When you got to the Barber Street and a uh, lot where the circus was being held and you walked onto the lot you would be walking onto sort of a long rectangular lot and you would go down the midway and midway was where you would have all the food you would smell popcorn and and ice cream and, and cotton candy you would see all this stuff cooking hot dogs and all kinds of good snacks that made you your mouth water and you know it's sort of a selling point you know as you're walking toward the tent here's all this food that's available for you to get now off to the right as you're walking down this way is the sideshow tent where you could go in and you could see you know um the dwarves and and thin men and, and fat women and, and women with long hair and those sorts of things. A lot of their uh, sideshow performers, as it were, 
um, were not particularly very good, according to people who were there that day. They were sort of kind of tame. And right near the sideshow was also the menagerie. So you could go to the menagerie and you could see all the different animals they had. Now, a couple of years before this, Ringling Brothers had a fire in their menagerie in Cleveland. And they had a top on the menagerie in Cleveland, which is what burned. And because of this, they lost a lot of animals. There were uh, there were a couple of, of elephants, I believe it was, Ringling Rosie, Little Rosie, um, some some giraffes and some zebras, some wild cats, ostriches. There was a, kind of a note about one giraffe who managed to survive by jumping out of her cage. And of course, you know, it's a giraffe, sort of a, a mental image that's kind of hard to imagine. But she did get out. You know, you had an ostrich running out with its feathers on fire. And basically, the, the gist of it is that at the end, they were running low on animals. So they had to um, get some more, obviously, from, you know, from private collectors or, or zoos or whatever, wherever they could get them. And so by this time, they have uh, no top on the menagerie, for one thing. They just have the side walls, which is basically the canvas that, you know, the walls of canvas. And a lot of the animals that these people would see were replacements after that menagerie fire. Now, two of the animals that they would see would be Gargantua and Mtoto, who were the big gorillas, uh, Gargantua being the male and Mtoto being his wife. They would marry them twice a day, and that would be part of the show. Um, Gargantua was actually sort of lazy um according to one or two people who'd, who'd been there that day they said basically he kind of sat there and and he uh he had this trick that he would pull, he'd do if you want to call it a trick where he would sort of pee in his hand and throw it at people who had arrived so that's it's it's not the prettiest thing in the world but that was their big selling point that here's this animal they have that's just as famous as jumbo and whether it was true or not, it was certainly a draw. Now, if you were looking for the bathrooms before you went into the tent, the toilets were available on either side of the entrance. Uh, the, men, the men's toilet was on the right of the entrance, and the women's was on the left. They were both surrounded by yellow canvas to distinguish them from the big top. And there was no attendance in there. There weren't anybody kind of watching over and making sure that nothing bad was happening in there, that there wasn't a fire, for example. Um, so, you know, it wasn't the fanciest sort of bathroom in the world, but those were the toilets. The big sign over the entrance when you got there, it, it, it said the greatest show on earth. It was a big sign, big, beautiful sign. Now, to buy tickets to go in, it was a $1.20 for reserved seats. And a lot of people would get free tickets by, say, you know, if you were a little kid and you were helping out during setup by maybe um, picking up bottles or moving things or, or, or deliver, you know, going from here to there, running errands, that sort of thing, you could get free passes. You could also get free passes if you bought war bonds. So you spend $100 on war bonds and you get a free ticket to the circus or presumably more. Tickets were also given away to business owners who put signs up in their windows. So 
you know, if you had a deli or you had um, something like that, then, um, you know, for example, Charles Nelson Riley, uh, the comedian from the 70s, uh, he would tell the story um, in his his play, The Life of Riley, about his friend Donald Baggish, who was the one that he went to the circus with that day. And his father had a bakery and put signs up in the window, and that ha that's how Donald got the tickets to the circus. Uh, one other way that you could get free tickets into the circus was if you showed up in your serviceman's uniform. So, you know, there were a lot of ways to get into the circus that didn't cost you any money. But, uh, like I said, it was $1.20 for reserved seats. And what would happen is that you would walk into the tent under that sign. Now, the tent was about 200 feet wide by 450 feet long. The side walls were uh, 15 feet high. The top of the tent was 48 feet high at its highest point. So you're talking about you walk into that entrance from Barber Street, you walk down the midway, you walk to that entrance, and the tent is lengthwise away from you. So when you walk in, off to your left and right are bleacher seats. They're blue seats, and they're kind of obstructed views, obviously, because of the lengthwise layout of the tent. The hippodrome track encircled the three rings in the middle. And there were, well, there were three rings and two stages. It was basically ring, stage, ring, stage, ring, right in front of you. There was a bandstand opposite the main entrance. So basically, if you looked down through those cages and across those stages, you would see the bandstand. And there were shoots animal shoots from two of the rings that extended outward at a, probably, I would say, 11 and 7 o'clock if you were standing in the entrance. What those animal shoots were was basically gates. They were kind of in a, kind of in a, in a um, arch shape, and they were tunnels that would go out of these, out of these two rings so that when the animal acts would bring in, you know, their lions and their polar bears and those sorts of things, they could go through those tunnels and then back out again. And those tunnels were actually set up after sort of the beginning performances, which were basically, uh, you know, the parade of people who would, performers who would say hi to, you know, people as they showed up. They'd be walking around this hippodrome track. And when they were away they would set up these tunnels these chutes with the intention that after the animal act was finished they would take the chutes away as it was there were eight tunnels other, there were eight exits excuse me other than the main entrance but many of those were used solely by circus employees and those animal chutes actually narrowed two of those exits so there really wasn't a lot of room to get past them the audience was encouraged to use only certain exits. So those two exits anyway, they probably would have said, don't go that way. Like I said, there were bleacher seats off to the left and the right of the main entrance. It, the same goes for the bandstand on the other end of the tent. You had the bleacher seats, and the bleacher seats were basically planks painted blue going up to the, t the um, even to where the sidewall connected with the tent, so about 15 feet. And the thing was that there weren't bottoms to them. 
So if you climbed up to that top level and you sat down, your feet were dangling into open space. So it was a little tricky. Um, I actually saw an account of one family where the one of the mothers who went, it was a mother and her sister and um, their three kids, uh, they're three different kids, and um, one of, uh, the mother was, was heavily pregnant. She was about seven, seven months pregnant, I believe, and she climbed the bleachers, and I can just imagine how difficult it must have been for her to sit down there, considering no bottoms like that. Um, but what happened after that was, um, what your other option, actually, I'm sorry, excuse me, your other option was to go and sit on the, the reserved seats. Now, the reserved seats were, uh, they were on risers, basically, and they were basically these painted red risers with flat bottoms, so not like the bleachers, and there were these folding chairs that were on these risers, and those were the chairs that you would sit in. The chairs were red this year. It's a very patriotic year with the red and the blue. And the thing about the painting of the chairs was that they were painted with a dip method. And what that is is basically they would take these folding chairs and they would hang them from hooks on an assembly line, move them over a vat of paint, dip them in, lower them in, and then pick them back up again and move on and to do the same to the next chair and so on and so on. And they did that every year. So there were multiple layers of paint on these chairs. Years later, uh, when a, a, uh, uh, an official took a chunk of paint from one of these chairs and set it on fire, it went up in seconds. So you have these, these chairs that are not the best in terms of fireproofing, I guess you could say. Now, the weather was hot that day. It was a pretty hot day, like I said. And the circus employees decided after a while, as these people are coming into the, as these people are coming into the circus, to lower the sidewalls a little bit. So there was a gap between the edge of the big top and the sidewalls at the top of the bleachers and the reserve seats. So you have this nice breeze coming through. Now, as, as the circus is about to start, you have people who are arriving late and those animal shoots are still there. To get over the animal shoots, they had set up these steps, these very narrow steps, wooden steps. You would climb up and go over them and go to your seats in the reserved seating. So, you know, it was, it was kind of make do with what you can until the shoots go away. Later on, when these people would have to leave, theoretically, the shoots would be gone and they could, you know, they would have an un, unobstructed exit. The show was scheduled to start at 2.15, and it took a little bit of time. It was a few minutes later, people are sitting around, they're fanning themselves, they're running to the bathroom really quick before the show starts. And that's when Merle Evans, who was the band leader, and the band strike up the Star Spangled Banner. 
you know, at that point, there are, you know, like I said, it's very patriotic. It's wartime. Uh, they do the Pledge of Allegiance. And at that point, Ringmaster Fred Bradna is sort of, you know, um, encouraging the crowd, kind of pumping them up, basically. Um, like I said, there was a parade of animals and performers before the animal tunnels were sent up. And once they um, were done, those, those um, animal tunnels were set up. After that, uh, these dancing girls came out. Um, once the, the performances had started, these dancing girls in bright mellow, yellow military costumes being, they were basically being trained, quote unquote, by performers in lion costumes with whips. So it was sort of a, you know, kind of a comedic moment where they would run around and pretend to, to organize these girls and the, and the audience would laugh. At that point, the performing animals came out. Now, these were trained animals under the head trainer, Alfred Court, but Alfred Court wasn't there at the time. He was actually in New York. His other trainers, the trainers that were under him, uh, Joseph Walsh and May Kovar were there instead. Joseph Walsh was in charge of lions, polar bears, and Great Danes, and May Kovar kind of did the smaller cats, the pumas and the leopards, those sort of things. Now, Makeover was in the ring closest to the entrance, which would have been the south end, and Joseph Walsh was in the ring closest to the bandstand, which would have been the north end. Now, as the animals were, uh, you know, once they were done, and the uh, Wal and Joseph Walsh and Makeover, you know, had done to their performances, they made their animals do all their tricks. And as the animals were getting ready to leave their rings, their respective rings, the Flying Walendas were ready to perform. Now, if you don't know who the Flying Walendas are, the Flying Walendas were a famous, a famous high wire act at the time. And they were huge. You know, they, there was this write up in the program for them, which makes them sound like they defy death and they, you know, tries to sell them up. And, um, and they didn't really need it. I mean, people who had come to the circus did not need to be told who the Flying Walendas were. And they were actually waiting on their music cue. They were standing up on the wire, just waiting to go out and perform. And that's the point where the fire starts. The fire started in the southwest corner behind the southwest bleachers, which would have been to the right of the entrance when you walked in under that Greatest Show on Earth banner. It was actually the fire, it was actually on the side wall, maybe about 10 feet from the ground. And it was on the side wall, which coincidentally, or none could, or not coincidentally, was on the other side as the men's toilets. Now, the two seat men who would have been watching that area, who would have been sitting under the, the bleachers and would have had theoretically would have had buckets of water or fire extinguishers to put that out. They were off performing sort of performing safety checks. I guess you could, guess you could say over by the um, animal tunnels as they were animal shoots, as they were about to be taken apart, which was another part of their job. So three ushers who were nearby came and threw buckets of water on that fire, but it didn't extinguish. And with the men's toilets on the other side of that sidewall, it was too tightly secured to the roof for them to pull it down 
to try and get that fire out. Before they could get it down, flames finally reached the roof, and they started to spread. And at that point, the ushers realized there's no stopping this, and they begin to evacuate the big top. The thing about a fire like this in a public place is that a lot of people assume that someone else is going to put it out. And so a lot of the people who saw the fire at first figured the circus performers are going to stop it. The circus workers are going to make sure that the fire is out and that it stops and we're all going to be safe. There's no problem. They're probably experts at this. But of course, the ushers tried and now it's on the roof. And at this point, there is no saving this tent and they know it. What they know that the audience doesn't know is that the waterproofing for the tent was an age-old recipe. And that recipe was a mixture of paraffin and white gasoline. Now, if you're anything like me and you hear that phrase, you immediately groan because you can just imagine how flammable that would be. But that was a cheap way for them to waterproof that tent. And fireproofing the tent was difficult even in the most normal of times. But this was wartime, and it was very hard to get fireproof material because the government had sort of a hold on that. Robert Ringling, who was in charge of the circus at one point, had made a deal with the the government to see about getting some fireproof material because it was very important to him. And the deal with them was supposed to be that the Ringling Brothers would perform on military bases. And the thing about Ringling Brothers is that it was run by, you know, the Ringling family and, you know, different descendants of the original five Ringling Brothers. And so while Robert Ringling may have wanted this tent to be fireproof and may have been fine with performing on military bases, the rest of the family was not. And so not only was the top not waterproofed, it was basically an enormous wick. Like I said, a lot of people in that tent thought that somebody would put out the fire. When they began to realize that nobody was going to put it out, they started trying to evacuate. Some people were calm, and some people weren't. The performers themselves were a little more prepared, I suppose you could say. Now, Carl Walenda, who was the leader of the Flying Walendas, excuse me, he signaled for them to get down as soon as he recognized there was a fire. And the fam family basically scrambled down the rope ladder and got out an exit. As for the animal trainers, uh, May Kovar and Joseph Walsh, they were still evacuating their animals from the tent. May Kovar saw the flames and she tried to rush out her cats. Uh, one tried to go back into the ring um, another cat started a fight in the tunnel with, with a cat that it didn't really like. And people were trying to escape over this chute. So having two cats fighting in the tunnel was not a good thing. 
the reason that they they normally didn't fight in the tunnel was that there were prop men beside the cage who, as these animals were going through the tunnels, through the chutes, they would stick poor boards through, and that would separate the cats so that each one could get through separately. But with the big top on fire, it was a little more difficult and a little more confusing for them. Now, there was stories that May Kovar had to crawl in after her cats because of the pressure, because of the growing fire. But she didn't have to do that. She actually was able to walk right out of the, the gate and help the prop men get those cats through the chute. But that became sort of a big story about how brave she was. You know, the bravest girl I ever saw. That was the phrase about May Kovar getting her cats out of that that chute. At the other end of the the tent, you had Joseph Walsh, and he had six lions in ring three, and he was rushing them out through that chute, and he got all of them out safely as well. As for the authorities, uh, there was no representation of the Hartford fire department on the scene. Now, that wasn't sort of a shocking development. There never had been representation of the Hartford Fire Department on the scene. The state fire marshal was there, but he was actually there as as part of the audience. Now, also, there were also other off-duty um, authorities. There was a police officer named George Sanford, and he had an 8mm camera, and he was actually filming the circus. So he got film of the fire. Uh, Lisa, I believe it was George Sanford. Um, there were two people who were filming, um, uh, at least two people who were who had film of the fire. Uh, one man filmed from outside, and as the fire uh, was raging, uh, he managed to escape and he filmed from outside. If you look on YouTube, you can actually find, you know, this film of the fire. And I mean, obviously, it's 1944. It's eight millimeter. It's not. You know, it's not CGI, it's not the best film you're ever going to see. But if you do feel like watching it, it's not, you know, you're not going to see dead people or anything. You're not going to see anybody dying, but you do see the tent. You see the cages where the animal performers were. And in the background, far away on the other side of the tent, you can see the fire. It's basically a large blob of white that is swallowing the tent and it's it's terrifying because you know just what is happening with that and like i said there, there was no fire department um representation on the scene but ringling had a chief of police who was also also the only member of its police department and one guy his name was john bryce and he was he was in charge of a few few guys who would you know, they weren't official police, but they were sort of his security, if you will. The Hartford Police Department did provide some police officers to patrol the lot and protect circus workers as well at no charge to the circus. So some of the, these officers actually did have family at the circus that day. Uh, there was one detective, William Deneen, he would lose a young son, Billy, in the fire. And he also had a daughter, Marion, who was there, and she was, she was injured as well. 
Um, some of those officers quickly set to work evacuating the tent and removing obstacles from the exits. You know, you're talking about the front exit, you have the, those guardrails, the entrance, so that they can filter people in. And they had to get those out of the way so that people could escape from the tent. There were two different uh, officers, uh, Patrolman Holst and Sergeant Spellman, and they independently went to a house across the street from the lot to call in the emergency. They didn't have phones in their cars. They had radios. Um, one of the cars that was there, I believe it was the one that Sergeant Spellman had come in, He his didn't work. So, you know, it was basically get to a house, find a phone, call in the emergency. A few of the officers did attempt to help people trapped behind those animal chutes, but when the fire enveloped the big top over, the head, over their heads, they, they really had no chance but to flee. But they did pull some people over those, over those chutes. And like I said, there was a state fire marshal there who was also the commissioner of the state police. His name was Edward Hickey. And he was in the top row of, excuse me, of reserved seating with his family. Now, he was waiting for the circus folks to put it out. He, like everybody else, thought they they know what they're doing. They'll put it out. But then the fire spread. So he and his family left over the top of these stands. And they had to go that way because the way down to the track was blocked by tumbled folding chairs. That was a problem with the those folding chairs, was that once everybody realized, hey, there's a fire, we need to get out of here, and tried to get out, they tried to go down to the track and leave the way they came in. And by doing so, it was very hard if you were lower down, and if you left lower down, to get out safely. The best way to get out in that situation seems to have been to go up to the top and find a way to wriggle, you know, down, you know, to get down off the top of the reserve seating or off the top of, of the, the bleachers. And what made it a lot easier was that people would, you know, with those sidewalls lowered, people could climb over those and slide down, basically like the emergency slide in a plane. Or they would, you know, sometimes they would just jump and they may break an ankle or break a wrist. Um, one woman broke her pelvis, and that was the pregnant mother from before. When she actually broke her pelvis, she did miscarry later on. And, you know, you had people who were sliding down poles to get down. There were people who, like I said, were, were jumping over the sidewall to get out. Those overhangs in the sidewall where they had lowered it to let through a breeze. But the thing about that was that when you got down to the ground and you tried to get out of the sidewall, if you were behind it and still inside the tent, the circus had nailed down the sidewall. And the reason being, at least on the ground, they had nailed it down. And the reason being was that people could not sneak in to the tent. And, you know, obviously you can't sneak into to the tent. Now you can't get out of the tent. So there were a lot of circus for people who were pulling up those those sidewalls so that people could sneak under. But there were also a lot of people there, uh, a boy named Donald Anderson among them, and he was probably the best known of the people who did this. 
um, he had a, a fishing knife on him. You know, it wasn't the sort of time where, where, you know, they checked you before you went in. And if you had a knife, you had to take it back to your car. He had a knife on him and he uh, was able to slice through the sidewall and escape that way. And the thing about Donald Anderson is that he got out, but he went back in to get the neighbor, the distant cousin, the, the older man that he came with. And um, he walked in and saw that the man that he had come with was holding a kid, a little girl lost, and was able to lead them out as well. And a lot of people did end up going out the hole that, that he had cut through the, the sidewall. So he saved a lot of lives that day. But he wasn't the only one who cut through the sidewalls. So it was a lot of people saving a lot of lives that day. Now, an announcer did speak over the PA system to tell everyone to leave in a calm and orderly fashion. But then the power went out. And when you don't have leadership in that sort of situation, it, it can, you can kind of dive into panic. Um, one person is quoted in the circus fire as saying, it is fair to say that many people were trampled by those with the brawn to carry it off. You know, there were some people who would, you know, knock you over. Um, one woman whose name was Hulda Grant, she had come with her daughter and a boyfriend and, and a neighbor boy. And a man in a Navy outfit came out of nowhere and punched her in the jaw to get her out of the way. And she actually ended up dying in the tent. She was knocked down and she was found dead later on. And that's the sort of thing that was going on in this tent. Um, the first alarm at this time was reaching the fire department at about 2.44 p.m. So this is about four or five minutes after the, the fire has started. Um, the water trucks that the circus had were supposed to be near the tent with their engines turning. But the employee in charge of doing so forgot. Um, his name was Deacon Blanchfield, Blanchfield or David Blanchfield, depending on which source you look at. But, you know, this is the kind of problems that they had. They actually had to go and get fire extinguishers because they weren't under the bleachers or under the reserve seating because they didn't want them to get damaged, which seems, you know, kind of a silly reason. When it came to the animals, um, like I said, the trainers got their animals out. And actually, because the circus folk knew that the animal act had just finished, a lot of them thought that an animal had escaped, and that was why everybody was panicking and screaming. Uh, circus workers actually made really quick work of, of getting all the animals safe. They they made um, the they got the elephants to move away from the burning tent to prevent more chaos, much like they did with the menagerie fire in in Cleveland. They basically just got the elephants to hold trunk to tail and move over to the other side of the lot. Now, Emmett Kelly was also there. Emmett Kelly is one of the most famous clowns who ever performed. He was working for uh, Ringling Brothers at that time. He would do Pento's Paradise, which was basically sort of a performance where he was having this dream and, and you know, they would do sort of clown acting and that sort of thing. And at that point in the show, he was in the performer's tent in the back lot behind, it was on the lot, it was basically behind where the bandstand would be. And 
you know, depending on where you read, he was either applying makeup or drinking a beer or both. Um, he heard people yelling fire and he looked out and he thought it was the sideshow on fire again. But he realized it wasn't when the smoke was black, like the smoke in the Cleveland Menagerie fire. Uh, in that instance, the smoke was coming, you know, from the big top. And so he recognized this is the big top again. So he grabbed a bucket of wa water that he had there for, you know, sort of washing his face, shaving, that sort of thing. And he headed to the tent with the wagons and the wagons to kind of the tent and the wagons, excuse me, to help put out the fire. At that point, there was this famous photo taken um, of that day. And it was him with full face makeup in his costume, walking towards the fire, carrying his bucket of water. And that's, and he looks really sad in that, in that photo, which, you know, his makeup looked sad. So he looked sad, but it was also being such a terrible day. It, that was where the name of the day came from, which was the day the clowns cried. Now, inside the tent, there are still people in there obviously at this time the band was still in there and they were playing on to try and calm the crowd now when the fire first started the band started playing stars and stripes forever in circus parlance basically um stars and stripes forever is the disaster song that lets every circus performer and every circus worker know that something is going wrong if they hear that song now, they refused to leave the tent. They would not leave the tent. They were trying to calm the crowd in there so that they would leave. And they actually didn't start to leave until the kettle drums exploded. Right after they did leave, a quarter pole fell and smashed through the bandstand, so they left at a pretty good time. There were two exits to the left and the right of the bandstand, so it was really easy for them to leave. They really just had to get up turn to the left or the right and walk out and once they got out there they still continued to perform obviously the ones you know the pianists and the drummers they really couldn't perform but you had um, Merle Evans with his trumpet and a couple other people also who were carrying their instruments and and they were performing as well to try and calm people outside now at this point pieces of the tent were starting to fall down on people and burn them the paraffin was melting in the fire and you know i know that i know that waterproofing was a mixture of paraffin and white gasoline but you know gasoline evaporates so really the only thing left on that big top was the paraffin and it was it was kind of working like napalm it was basically falling down you have this hot melted wax and fire and it's falling on people and it was getting people to move but in the worst way you know it was falling on people's backs and their heads and giving them very severe burns. People were doing whatever they could to escape. The problem was that there was a lot of chaos going on. You had one officer who was helping a man and his son escape early in the fire when he said, that dirty son of a bitch threw a cigarette butt and ran off. And later on, they did check to see if they could find this man 
through the newspapers and radio, they sort of called out to see if they could get him to come back and tell them who that person was. But nobody ever answered. There were also some convalescing soldiers from Bradley Field Station Hospital. And they were sitting to the front, in the front, off to the right of the southwest bleachers. So when you walked in that front entrance, they would have been off to your right, a little off to the side. Um, they were able to escape through an exit just to their left. And that was actually an exit where a soldier in a wheelchair had been sitting right up until the start of the fire. The people who were taking care of them from the hospital, who were, you know, sort of watching over them, they got them all out of the tent fairly quickly. But these soldiers ran back in and tried to help people. They actually, when they were coming out the first time, they were actually carrying some children, leading some children out. But they did try to go back in to save people, um, even though some of them had some very serious injuries. Now, the animal shoots. That was where a lot of the trouble was. Uh, people began to build up behind those still-constructed animal tunnels. It was probably a little terrifying. You get to this animal tunnel, and you have to climb over it. And these little steps are still there, but everybody is crowding trying to get over these steps. Everybody is pushing up against there. And not only that, but you have wild cats. Joseph Walsh's lions were still going through the chute. Mate Kovar's panthers were still going through the chute. And one of them got so angry and so you know, upset. It swiped at a child through the bars. And she had to kind of prod it to get it to go through. This was really a terrible place for anybody to be stuck. Now, there was a man named Bill Curley. He had actually come back to Hartford from a job in Ohio. He shaved up. He saved up his ration tickets for gas. He came back. He was visiting his son and his other relatives. He actually had been sort of goofing off before the circus at his mother's home, and he had been leaning on the railing kind of vicariously, and his mother said something along the lines of, you keep that up, and I'll send you home in a coffin. So another kind of touchy thing to say. Um, but Bill Curley grabbed his son and led him to... Uh, led him out of the, the, the tent. Um, you know, there's a couple of different accounts I've seen of this, you know, basically saying either he threw his son over the chute and told him to meet him by the car, or he took him to the car and then said, wait here, I'll be back, and went back into the tent. Uh, either way, he ended up on top of the chute, and he was basically, you know, he would grab a child, throw it over grab another child, throw it over. And he just kept helping people over this chute before he finally slipped and fell and went back into the crowd. Again, this is another story that um, I've heard, you know, different accounts of where he was up there until a quarter pole fell over and collapsed on top of him. Either way, he died a hero. Um, now, at this point, like I said, you know, before the, the pieces of the tent were falling down, the heat is starting to burn people terribly. They're all wearing this light summer clothes, and it's really no protection against the heat and the fire. And, of course, 
it's basically like an oven in there. You have, you know, a big tent and it's kind of keeping that heat inside. When the big top was breached, it actually started to draw heat up, but it became like a chimney and it fed the fire. And at this point, the poles are starting to weaken, the ropes are starting to snap, and the big top collapses at 2.50 p.m. Now, outside you have a man named Spencer Terrell, and he's taking photographs of this. And a lot of the photographs you see of the fire and the big top, Spencer Terrell took. Um, Robert Honorado was filming outside when the, the big top fell. And if you watch it, it basically wafts down like someone with a, a very full skirt sitting down on the ground. It just kind of woof out. And when it does, hot air sort of spills out. And that also burns more people in the process. People who were trapped inside, a lot of them at those animal shoots, they feel fire washing over them. Um, some had smoke inhalation and they passed out. Um, Eleanor Cook uh, was a little girl and her brother was Edward Cook. She had also had another brother named Donald Cook. And her mother was Mildred Cook. And Mildred Cook had taken these children who were staying with her uh, with their aunt and uncle um, because her and her husband were separated. And the story with them is that Donald ran off. She basically said, go ahead, you can get out on your own. And Donald, the oldest, he left. And she took Eleanor and Edward by the hand and started leading them down so she could get them out. And they were walking along and she just passed out. And probably from smoke inhalation. And Edward also passed out. And Eleanor just wandered off on her own. It's a little different from the missing persons report, I believe. Um, you know, again, it's another it's another instance of the of the chaos being so great that people were a little confused about what went on. Circus workers are, are splashing buckets of water on the tent and they turn the water trucks on the fire. And the fire department arrives at about the time that the big top collapses. So, you know, they show up and, and basically all they have before them is the stands and a sooty, you know, burned disaster area. They start laying out hose to fire hydrants on Barber Street. They lay out about a thousand feet of hose to go in there. Now, they start spraying everything and, and they're kind of trying to spray on places where people may still be alive. And of course, that's the shoots um, where, you know, there may be people underneath there who are still alive. And there are. There are some kids who are trapped further down who have burns, but they're okay. Basically, they're still alive. Um, there was actually two women who were pulled out from one of the piles near the shoots. Um, one of them was perfectly okay, except for a burn in her stocking. And that was it. And that was sort of a miracle, but you know, it was the only miracle they were going to get at that point. Um, one of the, the advantages of it being wartime is that there was a disaster preparedness plan already on hand. They had kind of, you know, made a plan 
that if the Germans bombed the area, they had everything ready from coordination of multiple state agencies to provide aid to having department store delivery trucks ready to carry stretchers of the injured to local hospitals. So when this happened, they were ready to go. Governor Baldwin's office uh, said that they would oversee the circus fire response to keep gawkers away from the scene. So basically they went on the the, um, the radio and the and that sort of thing, and they said, you know, if you, if you need, have any questions or you're looking for somebody, call our, you know, emergency response line. Um, calls went out around the city for medical personnel. They really needed to get people back to the hospitals and, and those sorts of things. And um, they went, actually went to movie theaters and either sent in ushers to find doctors and nurses in the audience or stopped the show entirely and made an announcement. Now, if you survived the circus fire, uh, you would probably be walking down Barber, maybe trying to find your car. Uh, there were a lot of cars left behind on yards, and people ended up having to call the police later and say, I think somebody's, somebody who died in the fire left their car on my yard. Um, the lemonade that they were selling earlier, they started giving out for free. Uh, there was a drugstore on Barber that had a payphone not far from the um, the circus plot, the circus lot. And you may go there. And if you had a child with you, they, they were offering free ice cream to kids to kind of make them feel a little better. Some people were actually charging for the use of their phone for survivors to call home. You had, you had some people who were, um, you know, they would go to a house and say, do you have a phone? And they would say, oh, go ahead and use it, call your family. And they would allow you to do that free of charge. But there were a lot of people who were saying, you know what, uh, you know, five bucks, five bucks, one buck, whatever, you know, to make a little money, which is kind of depressing, but you come to expect it. Um, you know, some people are, are good in the wake of disaster and some people are, are not so good. So. But uh, there were a lot of lost children wandering alone. Uh, they get separated from their parents. Maybe their parents were injured in the fire. Maybe they died. Uh, but they were alone. And they were either taken to police or given rides home by strangers. There were some, um, some people. Um, Donald Cook was one who had, I believe, was given a ride home by a stranger. Uh, there was another girl, Dorothy Bocek, who was separated from her sister and her nephew and she got a ride home with strangers which in this day and age it seems so strange and foreign but they were all taken home safely uh, one little boy actually ran into a serviceman and the serviceman offered to take him home and on the bus and as soon as the kid saw his home he ran off the bus and the parents were a little disappointed because they wanted to thank this serviceman for bringing their son home but the lost children that were brought to the police or who didn't really have anywhere to go were brought to the brown school in hartford um, and they waited there while parents looked you know, a lot of some parents went to the morgue before they went there. Some parents went to the hospitals before they went there. But the Brown School was where all of these children were being taken, sort of as a clearinghouse. And they were all finally picked up as of 12.30 a.m. 
So it was after midnight before all these kids were taken home, either by their the their parents or, or other relatives, you know, depending on, on what the situation was. On the lot, the dead and the injured were piled up at those chutes and scattered on the track. Uh, there's a story in, in the in the circus fire of, of a boy who's kneeling on, on one of the rings as if in prayer. And he looked fine, but the heat had cracked his skull. That's how hot it, it was in that, in that, in that tent. Um, a pole had fallen and, and cut a man in half. Um, there were bodies curled up on the ground in the pugilistic stance, which is basically um, when somebody is in a fire and the heat causes their, their muscles to contract. And so you find these victims with their, you know, sort of a, a pugilistic stance with their arms curled up like they're going to punch somebody like a boxer. So there were, you know, if you look at pictures of the circus fire and the aftermath, you see uh, pictures of, um, you know, bodies laying out and some of them have their arms raised like that. And there were some injured who were, uh, who were mobile enough to walk the mile to municipal hospital. But a lot of the survivors actually got rides in those delivery trucks from that disaster plan. They actually were able to get in there and uh, be taken to local hospitals. As for the dead, uh, they were taken to the floor of the drill shed in the state armory after inspection at the grounds by the medical examiner. So he would look them over and then he would release them and, and they would be taken to the armory. Uh, identification was a little tricky. You know, you have some of these bodies and they're burned beyond recognition. Some people bought dental records. Some people actually bought their dentist with them to identify relatives. And people were hopeful that they would be able to identify their loved ones because at the Coconut Grove fire, which was a couple of years earlier in Boston, every single victim, almost 500 bodies, were all identified. They were all identified. That so rarely happens, but at that time especially, but they did manage to do it. And so people were hopeful that they would go in and they would find their loved ones. Um, at that point, bodies were um, separated by age and sex. So if you went in and you said that you've lost your young son, they wouldn't send you to the section with the women. They would divert you over and, and take you to where the boys were. You would be escorted by a state police officer and a nurse. And the nurse was very helpful because there were a lot of people who were so distraught and so heartbroken that they passed out, that they were emotionally drained. There were people who went in there and identified their spouse and all of their children. And people identified their, their loved ones in, in very odd ways sometimes. You know, you don't really know how well you know your loved ones until something like this happens and you suddenly realize, well, I know this is my wife because these are the calluses on her feet. I used to sandpaper them for her. Uh, one little girl's father identified her by lift in her shoe. It was actually melted to her foot, but he recognized it. Now, out of those people, um, there were some famous, you know, there's some, some names that became a little notorious. Um, obviously, as I said before, Charles Nelson Riley was a comedian from the 70s. If you've ever seen, you know, Hollywood Squares or The Match Game, back then he was on those. 
uh, he was able to escape from the tent. And he actually was afraid to sit in an audience after that. Seems a little strange with the comedian, but he was on stage and he was a director and, you know, he wasn't sitting in that audience. Um, and that was where, you know, he, he was very stressed out. And a lot of survivors had those stories where they, they needed to have escape plans and their family always knew where to go in a case of a fire. One of the most famous names to come out of this was Little Miss 1565. Little Miss 1565 was a little girl who died in the fire. She d supposedly died when the mayor was visiting. Um, she was one of six unidentified bodies at the armory. She was never identified as anybody. Um, and that's not counting one unidentified body, in quotes, uh, which was basically a bag of parts. Um, little Miss 1565 was a little girl. She was maybe six or seven. Um, she was, you know, in, in the picture that you can see of Little Miss 65, 1565, if you look her up online, she looks like she's sleeping. And the only thing that really, you know, kind of tells you that something is off is that her left cheek, which is the cheek that you can see, is burned, black. But, you know, her eyes are closed. Her smile is, you know, she's, she's got her mouth open a little bit so you can see her teeth. She's, she looks fine. But, you know, she's a beautiful little girl. But she wasn't identified. There were a lot of theories why that was, that maybe somebody had taken a horribly burned victim that they thought was theirs, their daughter and this it was actually little miss 1565 or maybe that they looked at her and they said that's not my that's not my daughter that's not my granddaughter that's not my niece whatever when really it was they just didn't want to admit it was her so there were a lot of theories about why um, she wasn't picked but they buried her along with these other six uh, the other five unidentified bodies and one of the uh, officers, actually two of the officers who were there that day, uh, brought her flowers on holidays to her grave. Uh, one of them, Thomas Barber, uh, was doing it for decades. Uh, one of them died a little earlier than that, but Thomas Barber brought them all the time. Now, in 1991, uh, they did identify Little Miss 1565 as Eleanor Cook. And she was reinterred next to her brother. But there's conflict among historians who've researched and written about the fire on whether or not the identification of Little Miss 1565 as Eleanor was accurate. Uh, the dental records don't match. You know, they didn't do a DNA test. And they can't really do one because they would have to exhume multiple people. Um, the hair color didn't match. Eleanor was a brunette. 1565 was a blonde. The heights don't match. And family members at the time said that she wasn't Eleanor Cook. Uh, when the bodies were available at the armory, you know, her aunt saw her and said no. Her uncle saw her and said no. Her mother, Mildred, was still in the hospital, so she couldn't check. At this point, I'm not exactly sure that you could really, you know, it's really worth it to, to go and, and, and check in that regard. I mean, it would solve the mystery, but... At what cost? A lot of emotional damage to a lot of people, and, and it really is 
very late in the game to be looking into that. So she is good where she is. She is she is in a safe place and she's loved. That's the good thing. Now, as to whether or not the fire was set or whether it was accidental, it's never really been proven one way or another. When it comes to um, cigarettes, now they weren't allowed to be smoked by ringling workers on the lot, but audience members could not be stopped without the use of authorities. You couldn't stop people from smoking in the tent, and a lot of people would just do it anyway. So they just sort of let them do it, and they would throw water on the sidewalls when, you know, or into the hay under the bleacher seats where a lot of discarded cigarettes or matches could fall down there, they would try to keep an eye out for that. Um, like I said, the fire extinguishers were in the trucks and the wagons around the lot, but not under the seats. They didn't put that there. Now, there was one person who confessed but later recanted. His name was Robert Dale Siege. At the time of the fire, he was 14 years old, and he joined up in Portland, Maine, because according to him, his, his family was very badly off. Um, his father was lazy and wouldn't go out and work to feed the family. And so he basically said, if I wanted to eat, I had to go work. He, he worked in the lights department, and soon after the fire, he was caught and sent home for being too young. Now, in 1950, he confessed to starting the fire because, in his, his words, a red Indian riding a flaming horse told him to start fires. Which, it sounds a little, you know, it sounds a little ridiculous, but um, he claimed his mind went blank after that, and it didn't come back until after the start of the fire. Uh, he was convicted in Ohio of unrelated arson, char arson charges and sent to prison for 40 years. Uh, he was never charged or convicted of the Hartford Circus Fire. And that's, that's something that's, that's kind of bothersome, because when you, when you go on Wikipedia and you look up, you know, list of mass murderers and you start going down the list, um, it's in sections, so there's Europe and, and America and, and Asia and workplace killings and school shootings and those sorts of things. But when you go down to, you know, um, number of people killed, Robert Siege is still listed as the mass murderer of the of the Hartford Circus Fire. And, you know, never charged, never convicted. So somebody needs to fix that. Um, he did have a history of mental illness. And so, you know, the fact that he might confess to starting the fire because of a red Indian riding a flaming horse who knows um he did give an alibi of being at a showing of four feathers the movie uh when the fire occurred uh he told that to a couple of officers who came to interview him in 1994 um, in that interview it's on it's on youtube if you want to listen to it um he is not um he's very he doesn't really sound like I, I didn't want to say he doesn't sound like he did it, but he does sound, he does make a very convincing argument, at least for somebody who's 
um, does have mental health issues and doesn't really have the best education. And, you know, he's doing the best that he can to explain what he can and try to, I guess, clear his name. Um, so, yeah, I do believe that he didn't do it. Um, he he seems genuine to me. Um, he did argue that because it was so hot that day, that maybe that sparked the fire. I'm not sure if that would really happen, but it's his conjecture. It's what he argues. And he actually died three years after having that interview with those, um, those, those cops. Now, the Ringling Brothers, um, you know, before the disaster, it was really interesting. There was there was a lot of family strife um, with the Ringling Brothers, Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, and the running of it. You had five brothers who started it, and by this time, there was a lot of, um, you know, daughters-in-law and daughters and wives and nephews and cousins and that sort of thing. All this extended family who are running this company. And at one point, actually, what was really interesting for a company called Ringling Brothers is that Edith Ringling, who was married to one of the original brothers, Charles, and Aubrey Haley, who was married to Richard, son of one of the original brothers, Alfred, they had a binding agreement to vote together in the boardroom. And they were actually vice presidents of Ringling Brothers. So, you know, in this day and age to have, have two women at such, you know, high seats in a, in a company is, is really interesting. Um, but when the war came on, uh, there were changes that needed to be made. There was a lot of rationing. It was a lot harder to get supplies. Um, you know, there was a, uh, the president of the show, John Ringling North, and the vice president, Henry Ringling North, who were brothers. They took leaves of absence with full pay to distance themselves from what they thought would be the end of the circus at that point. They said, you know, this is going to ruin us. We're going to have to make all these changes. We're not going to make any money. So Robert Ringling takes over. He's the son of Edith. And they made changes like they played fewer cities. They played longer engagements. And they had no menagerie top for 1943. They actually had uh, no top at Hartford, like I said before. Now, the circus plays... Um, were being investigated by the cops and five of the circus employees were arrested the day after the fire for involuntary manslaughter. Those were James Haley, who was the vice president of the company. Uh, one of the vice presidents, I should say, uh, George Smith, who was the general manager, Leonard Aylesworth, who was a circus executive or a boss canvas man. Uh, and he was actually out of town at the time of the fire, preparing for the next show. So he had gone down to Springfield to buy, um, you know, all the sorts of things they needed and, and look over the lodge. And he came back and, and discovered that the top had burned. Edward Whitey Versteeg, who was the chief electrician, and David, or Dinkin, a deacon, uh, Blanchfield, who was the chief wagon man. Now, later that year, they were brought to trial. They were convicted. Uh, four of them were, uh, but they were allowed to go and, and set up for the next show in Sarasota because the money that they were going to use to pay back the families of the dead and the injured, that money was going to be coming out of their profits. So they needed to make sure that the circus was kept, that basically that it kept going. Um, actually, shortly after they were all convicted, uh, they were they were convicted. They were all pardoned. Um, and James Haley, the the VP 
did actually go on to spend 24 years in the U.S. House of Representatives, so didn't seem to negatively impact his political career. Uh, the circus would actually pay out that money that it was paying to the families, it, which was something like hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, you know, judging by today's standards, over the next 10 years. And that was for medical bills, that sort of thing. Um, you know, to people who had lost family members in the fire. And they didn't use the big top, obviously, for, for, the, for the rest of the season. And after that, it really became a thing where they, they would, you know, perform in amphitheaters and armories and, and places where they didn't have to have a big top up. Um, there are a lot of neat stories over the, the next few years. Like um, there was one family who went down to Madison Square Garden to see them perform. And the father went up to the uh, the ticket counter, basically took out a couple of tickets for the July 6, 1944 showing and said, you know, what kind of seats will these get me? And he ended, actually ended up in one of the boxes for the Ringling family. Um, since then, it's kind of been something um, that people have tried to memorialize, um, trying to come up with some way to memorialize and there was a memorial dedicated in 2012 on the site uh the site had uh where the lot was had actually been bought by the city in 1928 to build a high school but they had been using it for things like the circus since then and after the circus fire and you know everything that happened there um it, they built Fred D. Wish Elementary School on the site in 1962. So it did end up getting used for that sort of thing. And there's always, you know, those kind of, you know, ghost stories and those sorts of things. And if you if you look into the, the um, any of the books on, on the circus fire, they do mention, you know, that people will see ghosts of little children at the school. They'll hear laughter or they'll hear circus noises or, or any of those sort of ghostly apparitions that they're supposed to hear. Now, the memorial is um, on the Barber Street property where the main pole of the Big Top had been erected. It's a round sort of dome, little dome, like in the ground. Uh, the center of it... So basically, it's the shape of the of the main pole. Uh, the center features an image of the tent's layout from where you are. So basically, you know, if you could, if you look one way, you can see where the um, where the rings would be, or where the southwest bleachers, where the fire started, would be that sort of thing. And the names of the dead are listed alphabetically around that center image, like the spokes on a wheel. So if you wanted to go find somebody's name, you just walk around it until you, until you find that. It's really a beautiful memorial, too. I've, I've seen pictures, and I, I really think, you know, in terms of um, memorials, it's not, you know, it's not too showy or anything like that. It's, it's, it's very subtle and, and very nice. Um, when it comes to my, my personal thoughts on, on the circus fire, I always find it kind of unsettling. And I think there's a part of me that you know, finds it unsettling in a way where I kind of think, why haven't they made a movie about this? You know, why haven't they made a movie about the circus fire? And then I think, no, no, please don't make a movie about the circus fire because it would either be the stuff of nightmares or it would be a horror movie. 
it's just something so unsettling about this terrible tragedy hope happening at a place that's supposed to be fun. You're supposed to be having a good time, and it just all goes to hell, literally. It's just fire and death and just terror, absolute terror. So many people who were terrified and who were negatively impacted, you know, emotionally, physically. There were children who had been burned in the fire who were in the hospital for months who had to keep going back for surgery. So many children. Um, one child, Jerry Levasseur, I mean, they, I saw him interviewed in an, uh, a news story about the memorial. So he's been, you know, he's been alive all that time. And he had his, basically he had his fingers fused together and, um, you know, he was basically, um, his hands were very... Um, deformed by by the fire but he you know he learned how to play catch and he has you know he has kind of sports things that that uh, sports awards that he's done so he's he's a really um it's really interesting to see people who've, who've gone through that sort of tragedy and come out the other side and you know they're not the same person they were before but they're you know they find their way and so that's that's kind of what i like I don't want to say I like what I find interesting about the circus fire is it's this situation where everything is supposed to be normal, you know, where it's supposed to be a good time and it just, it turns so horrible. And yet people go on afterwards. People survive. People, people find a way, which I don't know what movie I got that from. I'm not going to lie and pretend I came up with it, but people do find a way. And that's something to keep in mind with the Hartford Circus Fire. It's so hard to read about. It's so graphic, and there's so much about it that is hard to wrap your mind around, just the imagery involved in it. But it's one of those disasters where people learn to be more cautious, and, and rules were made, and, and things changed, and people were a lot safer afterwards. So that's the story of the Hartford Circus Fire. Uh, next episode, I will try to come up with something very interesting, admittedly just as tragic, but we'll see how it goes. Until next time, stay safe. Mm -hmm.